Test, test, test. It's not inside.
Good morning on this rain-soaked Sunday once again. Let's go over some announcements together. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Nehemiah 1, verse 10. Today, of course, is Father's Day. No evening service. Enjoy the time with your families. I have been invited to play golf by a couple of my sons, and it should be a very interesting <laughs> event this afternoon. So they are determined. Down right now. <laughs> <laughs> Baby bottle drive ends today, so please turn your, your bottles in. Uh, you see the contact number uh, for the prayer chain with Andrea's number there. Uh, note the deficit in our bulletin. Not really a deficit. Again, it's it's just uh, kind of a shortfall so far. So keep that in the back of your mind. SGBA annual conference coming in June, twenty-first uh, and twenty-second at Schwartz Creek. Flyers with more information uh, on our table in there. New acts and facts, days of praise, booklets They're here for the next quarter. If you focus on just a brief second here on item number eight, church security meeting with the Lapeer County Sheriff's Department, uh, it's, it's quite important that all members that are uh, CPL holders, we're trying to encourage you to attend to get some very valuable information on procedures, protocol, and, and such that uh, we're trying to implement in our church. And it is open to the rest of the congregation as well. If you're interested in coming for your own personal information, that's fine. You're more than welcome to come as well. Uh, if you would look on the other side of your bulletin to our church praying, I'd like to make special note. First, our pastor is, is continuing a struggle with the uh, kidney issues, and he's going to start uh, uh, getting trained on, on dialysis. So that, that is something that we need to hold in our hearts for him. Also, the Donovan's grandson, Jacob, going to Afghanistan for a tour of duty with the National Guard. Please pray for his safety and his diligence and his, his fortitude that uh, he would be preserved through all of this. It's still a very dangerous time for our troops and... Uh, when you go through your prayers, please re remember him, if you will. Scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. 
Would you stand with us, please, and open our service in prayer? Brother George McLeod, would you lead us, please? Take your red Trinity hymnal this morning and turn to number 444, 444 in, in your red hymnal. <clears throat> I think my allergies are getting to me this morning and my voice is a little not great, so sing loud today.
Vivek and Drew. I see your hand. Yes, sir. Okay. I can look it up. It is well with my soul. It is three ninety. Four ninety what? Four nine three brown. Four nine three in the brown. That's Uncle Jared's favorite hymn. Yes, it is. Four nine three in the brown. Why? Why this song this morning, honey? It's my favorite. It's your favorite too. It's a good hymn. <coughs> Excuse me.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It's page 750 in your pew Bible. And if you would stand with us as we do the reading. Brother. of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. You take your red hymnal again and turn to number 457 457 in the red. Come down. 
Our scripture text this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. As we come to today's study, let's ask the Lord for his instruction from his word. Thank you, dear Lord, for the scriptures. We read in the scriptures that the writers say all scripture is inspired or God-breathed. And so that being the case, though men penned the words that you gave to them, the words are yours, and that means the thoughts are yours, the history is yours, And the spiritual truth and instruction is yours. So we've got a sure word from God. And because you are the God that does not change, not ever, what you told generations, indeed your people, centuries ago, the spiritual principles still apply for for our day. Help us to see that and to appreciate it. If God did change, Lord, we would never have a sure word from you. We would never know that what we were reading out of this black book was trustworthy. We would never believe that we should build our life upon it because you might change your mind. But we are thankful that you do not change. Perfection does not need to change. Every time we think of something changing... We're trying to improve it, or we're saying that it's not quite perfect. But when you do something, Lord, you are perfect. And so that's why nothing changes. The only people that change are us. We are creatures, but you are the creator. We thank you for that. Bless the truths of your word today and stir our hearts to love you more and to obey you in Christ's name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1. Today we begin a series on the book of Nehemiah. Follows the book of Ezra. The two books are so intertwined that some have conjectured that Ezra and Nehemiah were written by the same person they think it was Ezra. For some time, when the canon of scripture was being compiled, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were viewed as Ezra 1 and Ezra 2. But this viewpoint soon disappeared. It was discredited by the internal evidence of the book of Nehemiah itself. What kind of internal evidence? Well, for example, the opening verse states categorically the words of Nehemiah, son of Achaliah. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If Ezra were the author of this work, even as a scribe, he could not write this way. There is a personal touch to this kind of introduction. 
Even in the using of scribes, the end product is always attributed to the person comprising the words, not to the person writing them down. Thus, in, it's the same way in our day, right? If a boss dictates something to a secretary, she sits there and she knows shorthand, and she's taking him, his words down word for word, and then she will go to her typewriter or her computer, and she will type it out in longhand and send that letter out. And at the end, she'll probably bring a copy in to the boss to sign his signature at the bottom of it to show that it's not her letter and her words and her thoughts, but his. It's coming as an official uh, letter from that particular uh, corporation. So even in the using of scribes, the end product is always attributed to the one compri comprising the words, not the one writing them down. Paul is another example. You would often use another person to actually write of his letters, but then he would sign them. Let me read one for you. Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So he had somebody else write the letter, and then he, and then he signs it that way. Colossians 4.18. Or again, 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Could anything be more clear? He's saying I, I use a, a scribe. I use a, a secretary. But then I, I sign the greeting, the benediction, you would, would think, in my own hand. And you can compare that. Say, oh yeah, that's his signature. So even if Nehemiah used a scribe, the words are his. And what is more, he could not have used Ezra the scribe because Ezra was already in Jerusalem at this time. You can read about that in Ezra 8, verse 1 and following. So there's quite a distance between where Ezra is and where Nehemiah is. Another evidence of Nehemiah's authorship is, in the, is his use of the first person singular throughout the first six chapters of this book as he describes his concern and his work. Verse 1, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel, Susa, one of my brothers came and I questioned them. Verse 4, when I heard this, I sat down, I wept. And so on and so on. I mourned, I fasted, I prayed, I wept. I, 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 I. We are listening to the first-hand account of the person who's the author of this record. This is not third-party recollection or something which is coming our way even second-hand. No, Nehemiah is writing to us, laying before us his personal eyewitness account of the events of this book. He is telling us of his own history and how he became involved with the reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem. Having acknowledged his independence from Ezra, we must, however, acknowledge that there is also an inseparable connection between Ezra and Nehemiah. They were friends. They both lived in the post-exile period of Israel's history. They both were exiles who returned to Jerusalem to help out with the rebuilding of the city. 
They both served under Artaxerxes, the Persian monarch. They were both involved in building projects. Ezra, the temple, along with Zerubbabel and Joshua, the priest. And Nehemiah, building the city walls and the gates. They were both involved with moral reform in Israel, intermarriage that was going. We'll see that later on in the book. So there's much in common, therefore, between these two writings. And we would expect this of two people who served the same God, who lived in the same period of history, who served the Lord in the same geographical locale. They were contemporaries of each other, though each had a different role to play. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. As such, he handled the scriptures. He became a teacher of the law of God. The people looked to Ezra to be their spiritual guide, their teacher in the things of God. Nehemiah, on the other side, was appointed governor of Judea by Artaxerxes, and so the sphere of his influence was political. By the way, here's a good point for God's people to be involved in politics. We have people in the scripture that were actually serving foreign uh, governments. In this case, Artaxerxes. So while Ezra was involved with building altars and temples and reestablishing the Jewish festivals and proper living among the people, Nehemiah was involved with building walls, rehanging gates, reestablishing the military might needed to protect the Jews from their enemies and to guarantee peace for them in their homes. Yet neither of these roles was exclusively regimented, by which I mean there was spillover in responsibilities. Thus we find Nehemiah, no less than Ezra, interested in the behavior of the people. Of course he's interested in that. And how they abused the poor through charging exorbitant interest rates on loans. Chapter 5, which we will study. In having God's word taught to the people. Chapter 8, he wanted that done. In preventing intermarriage with pagan neighbors. Chapter 10. You know, that's how it should be in God's family. Not one of us serving just exclusively in the area of our office and nowhere else, as though the lines were drawn so hard and fast. But each of us being willing to serve whether we have the title or not, because Christ is worthy of our devotion and our love for the brethren, demands that we labor together for the common goal of advancing the kingdom of Christ. And we will see this admirably illustrated in Nehemiah's own life again and again. His view of leadership was not lordship. But as is true in the meaning of the word itself, he led the people in the paths of righteousness by walking those paths before them, setting them an example, and it was kind of follow me, not do, you do what I tell you to do, not that. But follow my example. As we open our account, 
there's trouble in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was alerted to the problems of the city. I think all of us like to get news from home. Nehemiah resided in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, hundreds, thousands of miles to the east of Palestine. For example, we know that it took Ezra four months to travel the distance from Susa to Jerusalem. Four months to travel. And he thought he made good time. This was not the day of email or even regular posted mail. We're blessed, or maybe you think you're cursed, I don't know, to live in the age of instant information. When events of importance are happening, the media is right there with its cameras and its microphones to capture the event live. But Nehemiah and his contemporaries had to wait for news to come by way of traveling friends and relatives or by special courier if the news were important enough to warrant such. Well, one day, one of Nehemiah's brothers, Hanani, came to Susa with other men, and Nehemiah asked them for a complete update of what was transpiring in Jerusalem. And the news, verse 3, was not good. Those who survived the exile, they say, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. They go on. They tell us what the trouble and the disgrace is. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This is the trouble and this is the disgrace. You know, a city without a wall in these days was also a defenseless city. Every crackpot with an axe to grind or wanting to make a name for himself could form a marauding band of thieves and murderers to plunder at will the defenseless pity of, uh, uh, people of the city. Jerusalem was in this precarious state. You couldn't even sleep at night in any kind of peace, for fear that you would not be attacked in your bed. Walls of protection are essential in every culture. <laughs> We're even finding with our own president who wants to build a wall on the southern border of the United States. Why? To keep out the criminals and the dope addicts and all of those that are involved in shady deals, the mafia and so on. say, well, we don't have walls built around our cities today. Oh, yes, we do. We do. We have the wall of the penal system, which promises to avenge the hurt or destruction of the innocent and to hunt and down the perpetrators of crime from state to state, from country to country, if necessary. We have the wall of police protection, sheriff's deputies, City and state police prowling the roads at night, able to come to the rescue of a matter of minutes if danger is reported. We have the wall of personal protection, the right to own weapons for self-defense, alarm systems for our houses, bolts, 
locks for our doors, 911 emergency call to firemen, ambulances, police. We have the wall of the military with its radar, its missiles, its satellites, its nuclear subs, its jet aircraft, etc., etc., all poised to protect our country from an invasion of hostile forces. The exiles of Jerusalem had none of these things. All they had was their temple, their altar, their homes, which they had resurrected out of the ruins. But the physical walls of Jerusalem were smashed down. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem. It's on a hill. They talk about going up to Jerusalem. They're not talking about going from the south to the north. They're talking about literally going up the hill to Jerusalem. Well, that was part of its protection, that you had to go up a hill to try to force your way into the city. But those kind of things were done. The physical walls were smashed down. So that means they couldn't even close a gate at night. They couldn't bolt or shut any kind of entrance. And surrounding them, as we all see clearly in the book of Nehemiah, were enemies who hated them and did not want them to regain a foothold in Palestine. That will become more evident as we get through the book. The writer of 2 Kings tells us of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion, the original invasion of Jerusalem. And we read, Nebuzaradan, now that's not Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuzaradan, the commander of Nebuchadnezzar's army. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, came to Jerusalem. Now notice, he set fire to the temple of the Lord, to the royal palace, to all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down, the whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. 2 Kings 25, verse 8 and following. Talk about a demolition. Jeremiah was the prophet who was there when all of this happened. And Jeremiah writes, the whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Jeremiah 52 verse 14. And in his lamentation, which he also wrote, the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah weeps over fallen Jerusalem and saying, the Lord is determined to dare down the wall around the daughter of Zion. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. Their bars he has broken and destroyed. So this is the defenseless state in which Nebuchadnezzar left the city of Jerusalem after his invasion. It is true that according to Ezra 4, the exiles did attempt to begin to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. 
But Rahim, the commander of, of commanding officer in Shemeshai, the secretary wrote an alarming letter to the king of Persia, accusing the exiles of, in his words, restoring the wall and repairing the foundation of the rebellious and wicked city. Nice friends, huh? Ezra 4, verse 12. They so alarmed the king by their biased report that the king wrote back giving them the authority to halt the work which they did by force. Verse 23. So whatever little progress the Jews had made in rebuilding the walls was brought to a grinding halt and remained so until the arrival of Nehemiah 13 years later. What I'm saying is the city was truly defenseless and in danger. What about the disgrace part to which Hanani refers? Well, Jeremiah tells us of this in his lamentation. Chapter 2, verse 13 and following. What can I say for you? What can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? All who pass by your way clap their hands at you like that. They scoff at you with their heads. You know, you can just imagine. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide against you. They scoff. They gnash their teeth and they say, We have swallowed you up. This is the day we have waited for. We have lived to see it. God has overthrown you without pity. He has left the enemy gloat over you. You can just hear it, can't you, in their words and see it in their actions. I mean, isn't this just like human nature to do just what we read here? It isn't enough for the Babylonians and now for the Persians to utterly destroy the Israelites as a nation, to reduce their beautiful city to ashes, and to carry their survivors into captivity. No, no, no. They must resort to scorn, to ridicule, to belittling remarks, to demoralizing tactics, all of which are designed to heap disgrace and shame on a people that are already whipped and dejected. We have a saying in our day, about kicking a person when they're down. That's what's going on. The human heart is so wicked and full of hatred that it can't let things go. We have to rub salt into the wound. We have to add shame to misery and disgrace to subjection. Well, what would you do if you've received news like this, I mean, here is Nehemiah. He's all excited about the fact that his brother and friends have come uh, from uh, come to Susa from Jerusalem. He anticipates a happy reunion. He has heard of the reconstruction of the temple, the reinstatement of the animal sacrifice, and, and he thinks all must be going well. And then this bombshell is dropped on him. The exiles are in great trouble and disgrace. That's what's going on in 
Jerusalem. What would you have done? What would your response have been to such a sad and demoralizing news? Well, I'll tell you what Nehemiah did. He prayed. Look at verses 4 and following. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive to your, and your eyes open to hear the prayers your servant is praying before you this day and night for your servant the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But Here it is. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even in your exiled people are as far as horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as the dwelling for my name. Wow. The first thing Nehemiah did when he got the bad news was to pray. He did first what we often do last. He prayed. What's the rationale behind prayer anyway? Why do we even bother? Nebuchadnezzar had come with his army. He had leveled the walls of Jerusalem. He had burned the gates, taken the Jews into captivity. Now the Persian officials, at least those living within the territory around Jerusalem, were dead set opposed to any refortification of the city. They're thinking, let these troublesome Jews have their temple and their altar, let them worship their God. But the minute they pick up trowel and mortar to rebuild the walls, that's where we draw the line. They're not going to do that. There are those who would read of these things and they would say, well, you know, hey, that's life. Right or wrong, you need to deal with it. You can't change things. You you have to learn to accept the cards of fate as they're dealt to you. And so such people, the whole business of prayer is kind of of just a moot point. (laughs) I mean, why bother? Just learn to take life as it comes, hard knocks and all, because you can't change anything. And the sooner you accept that, the quicker you can learn to adjust and... Get on with the important issues. That is a fancy, fancified version of fatalism. All is programmed, they're saying. Everything is fixed. You have no, you have nothing to do except your fate in life. Just try to live life the best way you can under the circumstances. 
May I say as harshly as I can that the Christian faith is not based on fatalism. Even the doctrine of predestination is not fatalism. Christianity is opposed to fatalism and any of its sister deviates like depression and despair and suicide. Giving up, giving up, giving up. The reason Nehemiah prayed to God on this occasion is the same reason why we pray to God when the hard times and disgrace come into our lives. Nehemiah knew some things about the humiliation of Jerusalem and the defenselessness of its state without its walls that the pagan observers never saw and never could see. The pagan concept of life is often fatalism. It is often fatalism. That things just, they just happen because they were meant to be. It's kind of the evolutionary concept of the survival of the fittest. The strong overpower and subjugate the weak. The Jews were getting too big for their britches. Nebuchadnezzar had a superior army, superior armaments, and so when push came to shove and Israel refused to pay him tribute, he just crushed them like some worm under his boot. Of course, right? That's what big nations do to little nations. Nothing astonishing about that. Maybe not because evil men do the predictable, and because evil has a way of living out its principles in an observable pattern. What do we expect from big, bad Babylon? But I'll tell you what is astonishing and what is not predictable. It's the operation of God among men in such a way that God himself controls the evil that men do and directs it to accomplish his own purposes while all the while never infusing men with the evil they do but promoting or prompting them to act con- never prompting them to act contrary to their own desires he doesn't make them evil he just takes hands off and lets them be themselves and what are they above themselves they're evil and this is what Nehemiah knew about the events which had befallen Israel and Jerusalem. Isaiah wrote it this way, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and terror in the valley of vision, a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. The defenses of Judah are stripped away. You saw in the city of David had many breaches in its defenses. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem, tore down houses to strengthen the wall, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on the day to weep and wail, to tear out your hair and to put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying that God is responsible for the battering down of Jerusalem's walls, for the breaches in their defenses. This was his judgment designed to bring his people to repentance of their sin, but instead of weeping and wailing about their sin, 
They partied saying, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we're going to die. One last good old yo party. Jeremiah wrote something similar. He wrote, Jerusalem's foes have come have become her master. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. And in his wrath, God has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. The Lord determined to tear down the walls around the daughters, the daughter of Zion. Those excerpts from the book of Lamentation. We don't often read the book of Lamentation, but there it is, Lamentation chapters 1 and 2. So this then is the inside information about the historical events which occurred in Jerusalem to which Nehemiah was privy. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies against the city. Yes, he laid a siege against it, cutting down, cutting off rather both food and water supplies. Yes, he built a rampart against the wall. Yes, he sent his armies by the hordes to tear down those walls and to desecrate the temple. But behind it all, indeed over it all, was the hand of God Almighty, directing, moving, planning, exercising, executing his conduct in such a way like a fine conductor orchestrating and directing the players to perform the way he wanted it done. I would say to you that no pagan ever sees this in the events of history. They never do. But the believer should see these things and should understand them. Things don't just happen. We know that uh, Nehemiah saw this because he tells us that he saw it. Look at verse 8 and 9. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even in your exiled people are at the Father's horizons. I will gather them from there and bring them into the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So you see he's connecting the dots with what has been given to Moses in the scripture. He grasps the connection between where Israel was now as a nation and how their sin had contributed to their demise and how now among the exiles, their trouble and disgrace. His own confession of sin, verse 6, and that of Israel's, verse 7, like Ezra's prayer before him, indicates that Nehemiah knew something about cause and effect. And that's Israel's problem of the present day. They were rooted in their past sins, sins for which they needed to petition the Lord for forgiveness and healing, and they weren't about to do it. So the heavy hand of God was on them. And Nehemiah connects the whole victory of Babylon and how Persia was also victorious. He connects it to Israel's unfaithfulness to God. 
who did as he promised by scattering them among the nations. So the question comes, why bother to pray? I mean, God's doing his thing. Well, we pray because the events of history don't just happen. We pray because the things that come into your life have nothing to do with chance or luck or blind fate. We pray because behind the events, be they good or bad, God stands poised as, verse 5, the awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. There's more to the decrees of God than judgment. Oh yeah, there is judgment. A scattering among the nations as here with Israel. A scattering in such a way that we are in peril with the walls of defense broken down and a disgrace because of the compromises we've made concerning our faith. But beyond judgment, there is also the promise, verse 9, if you return to me and obey my commands, even if you are exiled people, the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. This promise of forgiveness and restoration is, is as much a part of the decrees of God as judgment. And it's because our God is a covenant-keeping God that we can bank on his word to do as he has said. And this is why Nehemiah prayed when all seemed so foreboding, so black, so utterly hopeless. This is why you and I must pray. Are you burdened down with your sin this morning? Something going on in your life? Have you felt the heavy hand of God on your life because of your sin? I mean, think about it. What heartache has your own sin produced in your life? A divorce, a rebellious child, an estranged relationship with your parents, a bitterness of soul over some foul deed that you did in the past? Is there some shame, some disgrace which has come your way because of your behavior? Did your temper get you into trouble with someone that you love? Have you lost your reputation in the church as a godly person because you can't control your tongue? Yeah, well, I always speak my mind. Well, yeah, but is your mind worth speaking? None of the trouble you and I experience is incidental or accidental. We reap what we sow. Circumstances are not to be credited with your grief. God is responsible. God brings us low. God deals with us, with our life, judging us for abandoning him. We make a mess out of our own lives. That's really true. Because we won't listen to him. We won't listen to the good counsel 
of our spiritual friends. Our pride continues to push us to do what we just want to do. Well, now you've done it. And perhaps your life is a mess. God has seen to it that when you sowed the wind, you reap the whirlwind. So this then is no time to forget God. And that's what people do. It's no time to attribute the tough things that we're going through to the fickle finger of fate. To do such a thing once again is to forget God. No, now is the time to pray and to pray with the full realization that Nehemiah had when he prayed. You have to pray knowing that God knows you inside and out. You have to pray not with an attempt to try to snow God. But to understand he's the one that has brought you low. And if he brought you low, he's the one you have to go to lift you up out of the mess. That your own sin has committed. So Nehemiah reminds God that Israel was God's people. Verse 10. Whom you redeemed by your great strength and mighty hand. You ever pray to God that way? You ever say he doesn't need to be reminded of anything? No he doesn't. But when you are talking to God like that. You know Lord you promised or you said this. What you're demonstrating is that you know what he said. You know what he promised. You're not saying, and when you talk to God like that, uh, just by the way, I think you have forgotten a few things and I need to straighten you out. No, we don't pray that way. We don't have to remind God of anything. We're reminding ourselves of what God has promised us and said to us. So Nehemiah reminds God that Israel was God's people. Yeah, that's true, verse 10. Whom you redeemed with your great strength and mighty hand. And Nehemiah is saying to God, I know who we are. I know what you did for us. Have you ever thought that perhaps you have sinned so horribly and made such a mess out of your life that you are beyond the help of God? I would say to you that that thought comes right out of the pit of hell. To think that you're beyond the help of God. Don't ever think that way. We're told in this text God has great strength and a mighty hand when it comes to redemption. He knows how to save sinners. And the cross of Jesus was his instrument and the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord. Was his redeeming work. No sin. Is beyond the forgiveness of God. No bitterness of soul. No trouble you've experienced. 
No shame you've been through. We're to pray with the knowledge of such realities concerning God as Nehemiah did. Boy, he just laid it on the he just laid it on the carpet. Lord, we have sinned. Not only we, Israelites, I and my house, I have to take my part and say my part. Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 31, verse 28, speaking of Israel. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to destroy and to bring disaster... So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. You know, the pagans talk about things like, if it's a bad thing, it's the devil made me do it. If that's what comes into your life. If it's something good, then the Lord is blessing them. And Jeremiah is saying, it's the Lord's business either way. To tear down, yeah, to bring low, to humble, to shame, or to build up, to restore, to bring back in a right relationship with him. Don't rob God of his control of your life. He is God, and there is no other. Lord, I pray that you'll bless us with the truth and reality of who God is. And when we sin, yes, we're going to get disciplined by you. And it isn't the devil that's after us. It's you that's after us. And it's you that also gives us a heart of repentance so that we understand that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteous. We don't have to get ourselves right to come to you. We come with all of our sin and trouble. We come with our wrong thinking. We come with our shameful conduct. And we just dump it. We just dump it before you. And we plead mercy and we ask you to handle it. On the merit of Jesus Christ. Not because we deserve anything, but because he has won for us the prize the forgiveness and redemption through his broken body and his shed blood, which he did for his people. Why? Because you loved us before the creation of the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 472. 472. Let's stand together and sing.
the battle is the Lord's, right? We're so weak in our faith, so burdened down with our sin. And we have formidable enemies, spiritual enemies against us. Who can stand? Only Christ can stand. Today's Father's Day. There's a gift waiting for you outside the door. We need to praise the Heavenly Father today that he sent his son to be the savior of our souls. Have a good day. Lord bless. Mm-hmm.